0: I want you to think for a moment of a song that's a favourite of yours, and where, if you remember, it being played in a certain way. Sometimes it's a moment in time. Maybe it was your wedding song. I ours I can remember distinctly um, our first dance at our wedding. I didn't realise that when you have a garden wedding, you need to wear little discs under your high heels. So all I remember is getting. Plant, my heels getting planted into the into the ground, so that one is a little bit bittersweet. But often it just conjures up so many memories and take us to places. For me, another time where I was thinking of was um, when I was in Greece in 2005. And if you know anything about me, I love traveling. I love coffee, and so I planned my perfect place to have my first cup of coffee. And as I walked into this coffee shop the most beautiful song was playing. It was one of my most beautiful songs from a movie, one of my favorites. And so I just heard this and sat down and ordered my coffee. And I remember just made made that moment so beautifully real. And then we actually went onto an island and I was in this beautiful little village and they threw a speaker. Once again, the song played and it was an obscure song. I was like, I'm not saying that was God. It was just for me, made that moment so beautiful. And that's often what songs can do. It can transport us back to times. And what I actually really love about our community Sundays is it actually engages all our senses in worship as we pray together, sing, share around God's Word, we hear, we see what God is doing, we even have some food together, and it just makes it so memorable. It's becoming a lot of the kids in Kids Ministries' favorites too, but I think that's the cupcakes. Um, But there's so many things as we engage our senses in celebration that really help us to remember moments. And the psalm that we're going to be looking at, we've been doing a series, Jesus in the Psalms. And there's a Jesus, if you know kids' Bibles, there's one called Jesus Storybook, and their logo is Every Page Whispers His Name. And it's often like that in the book of Psalms, that Psalm after Psalm, they just beautifully whisper out His name. And so this is one that we're going to be looking at. But I sometimes think we miss out a little bit on the significance of the Psalms, because in the Jewish communities, they were often sung. And they were sung as they were walking around, celebrating as part of the feasts. And this would be those moments where they would sing these songs. And the Psalm I'm going to be looking at today, Psalm 118, Comes from some scriptures in the Psalms, Psalm 113 to 118, which is known as the halal. And halal is the Hebrew word, it's the Hebrew word for praise, where we get the word hallelujah from. And it's still sung today. You can watch. YouTube clips on it. I watched this one. It's quite interesting to see. The irony is, I don't know if you can see in the corner, it says very smally, very small, <laughs> smally, what's that? <laughs> very small. Keep calm and be Jewish. So I don't know if you, I don't want to insult you if you have Jewish roots, but I'll throw in Greeks and Italians are not known for being calm. Um, and this is quite an interesting clip that I was watching, but I didn't add it. It doesn't add real value, but quite interesting to see that this is still sung today as part of the Passover celebration at the Seder meal, and so these psalms are significant for any Jewish person, and they would have been in Old Testament times. This psalm also happens to be significant for people that love numbers. I'm not sure there's anything particularly spiritual about this because um, chapters and verses were added to the Bible in the 1500s in the Geneva Bible, but. Basically, if you actually counted the chapters, I'm not sure who has time to do that, but someone counted the chapters in the Bible, and the middle of the Bible is Psalm 118, and apparently verse eight is the middle, slapdash in the middle verse of the Bible. Um, but it's also before the longest chapter, shortest chapter. Sorry, it's before um, it's before the longest chapter in the Bible and after the shortest, because the shortest is Psalm 117. And Psalm 119 is the longest. So thank goodness that Psalm 119 isn't included in the Jewish festivals. Otherwise, we'd be there for a week. It's the longest. It would take them forever to sing. But it's a very spiritually significant chapter. And obviously, every verse in the Bible and every, even every comma we are told um, in God's Word is there for a reason. Every, it's there for a purpose. Um, but this seems to be a scripture that a lot of people have held on to. Martin Luther had this to say about Psalm 118. He said, this is my own beloved Psalm. Although the entire Psalter and all the Holy Scriptures are dear to me as my only comfort and source of life, I fell in love with this Psalm especially. Therefore, I call it my own. When emperors and kings, the wise and the learned, and even the saints could not aid me, this Psalm proved a friend and helped me out of many great troubles. As a result, it's dearer to me than all the wealth, honor, and power of the Pope, the Turk, and the Emperor. I would be most unwilling to trade the psalm for all of it. And I think if you when we read it just now, you're going to see the significance of it just takes us almost through every emotion and every aspect of God's character. And so a lot of us takes us through the work of God, but then it also has some some parts that speak into Jesus and what he did. But another interesting one was John Wycliffe, the, the famous Protestant reformer. Now, in his day, people thought he was preaching absolute heresy. And so, he fell sick because he was exhausting himself with all the work he was doing for God's kingdom. And so, when he fell sick, people thought he was going to die. So, what happened is a whole lot of the monks, the friars, gathered around and they were encouraging him firstly they were saying they were wishing him well in, in his life and just saying i hope you get better and then they turned quite quickly and said would you like to do your final confession and were encouraging him to do a great confession and that would be good for them because then he would basically recant he would turn away from everything he had taught And so there's a well-known verse in Psalm 118, which you might know, and it's actually a really beautiful one. It says, I shall not die but live and proclaim what the Lord has done. But his response, after listening to them and them talking him up and explaining to them why he should do it, he got his aid to prop him up. And they're propped up, he said these words to them. He said, I shall not die but live and proclaim the evil deeds of the friars. And at that, they, they left probably more angry than before. Um, so this seems to be a very well-known psalm. It is quoted um, quite a lot in the rest of the Bible. In the book of Israel, when they lay laying the foundations for the second temple, this song is sung. And we see that in Israel chapter 3, as they, as they say, as prescribed by David, king of Israel, with praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, he is good and his love towards Israel endures forever. And that is also through that verse, that's why we say that King David wrote this particular psalm. But not only that, it's an interesting one to reflect on, because this would have been part of Jesus' worship, his last worship experience with his disciples in the Passover as he journeyed to the cross. Because Psalm 113 to 118 was part of this, was part of this Passover, it would have been a part of his Passover meal. And as he leaves, we are told in, in Matthew and in Mark, but in Mark it says this, after um, they, had, they had drunk together and eaten together. Um, in verse 30, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And this would have been that song that they had sung, this part of the Scriptures. And so it's interesting to, to read it in that context and thinking, I wonder what was on Jesus' mind as he's singing that and singing about God's goodness, but God's wrath is going to be unleashed on him. But also knowing that in some of these words, is, it's speaking into who he is and the work that he is going to be doing. And so, it must have been a rather strange experience to be part of this worship and see this history being brought out in this moment in salvation history, being brought out before before the disciples' eyes. But we also know from there, he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prays, and he has deep anxiety and anguish. So, even though God is mighty, there's a journey that he's about to embark on that is painful. And so, let's read Psalm 118 together, and we're only going to be looking at a very simple two sentences, actually, um, from the Scripture, but it's such a beautiful Scripture that it's it's worth reading it all together in Psalm um, 118. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, His love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his love endures forever. And that opens salvation up to everyone, just to those who fear the the Lord, just a a peek of what's going to happen also in salvation history. Let those who fear the Lord say, his love endures forever. When hard pressed, I cried to the Lord. He brought me into a spacious place. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me; He's my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than trust in human humans. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than trust in princes. And then this next verse speaks into what it also would have been like around the cross, um, a cosmopolitan area where where there was this diversity of languages and the people. All the nations surrounded me, but but, uh, in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. They swarmed around me like bees, but they were consumed as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them down. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my defense, And he has become my salvation. And the Hebrew word for salvation is Yeshua. So he has become my Yeshua. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die, but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of righteousness, righteousness, of the righteous, and I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my Yeshua, my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you remember that being said in the triumphant entry? Um, From the house of the Lord, we will bless you. The Lord is God, and he's made his light shine on us. With bows in his hand, join in the festal procession. Up to the horns of the altar, you are my God, and I'll praise you. You are my God, and I'll exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good, His love endures forever. And you think of just the beauty of it, that victory in this nation in the in the Jewish um, community as they were, had been oppressed and were just looking to God as their salvation, the beauty of it, they would have known as they had sung this, just the the glory that it contained. But as Jesus sang it, he knew that there was something even greater coming. There was salvation for all. And so we're going to be looking at that simple messianic prophecy in verse 22. The stone the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. And it's so pivotal in our faith that if we understand this, we really get an entrance into salvation. And understanding what salvation really means Um, But with this, this this specific phrase is the most quoted Old Testament in the New Testament. It's quoted throughout the Gospels. Um, It's also quoted by Peter in Acts chapter 4. And then Paul alludes to it in Ephesians 2 verse 20, and then it's also spoken about in 1 Peter. So, it's mentioned many times. It was a very important phrase. And you think about the statement, firstly, the rejection, the stone the builders rejected. And how this would have been something very common for David, who wrote the psalm, um, if you think of his journey into becoming king, when there's a time where they're needing to anoint a king, and they're all the obvious choices of the brothers, and every one of them looks amazing. They're older than him, they're greater, and they are presented, but it's not that one, it's not that one, it's not that one, it's not that one, until the question gets asked, is there anyone else? And where is David? He finds himself in the field tending the sheep. Think about the journey of Jesus. He's rejected, rejected, rejected. He isn't presented what, as the way the world would have expected him to. He doesn't come. As a, as a priest. He doesn't come wearing all the garb. He doesn't come with all the legalistic terms and all the judgmentalism. He comes in his way, and where is he found? Not amongst the spiritual of those days who thought they were awesome. He was found tending to the sheep. And you see these journeys after journey of people in the Bible who suffered rejections. Um, We call some of those people types of Christ because they showed us this pattern of how God was going to work in salvation history. You see, see people like Joseph. You see Abraham. You see David. You see Moses. And all of them suffering a rejection. And if I had to ask you, if you... Had to define Jesus' ministry and just speak to me about Jesus' life on earth. If you've read the Gospels and you know the Bible, we often hone in on all the, on all the amazing teachings. We go into the, the, the fact that He did miracles, that He worked wonders, that He taught. We think of the servant, Sermon on the Mount. We think of all these things that He did, the healings, everything that He spoke into because that's the Jesus we serve and that we love. But if you think about Jesus and you really track and read the Gospels, there's a significant pattern of rejection that comes in his life over and over again. And it's a very tragic way to read the Gospels, but it's quite interesting. If you look, I've just highlighted a few. Firstly, his, his origin. From the time he was born and there's this genocide and they're trying to kill up the babies, he's a threat already then. John 7 verse 52 They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. He was also insulted and rejected for the company that he kept. Matthew 9 verse 11 says, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They even questioned his timing and his lack of honor of traditions. Luke 6 verse two, some of the Pharisees asked, "Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath?" He was rejected by his own. In John chapter one, verse 10, we, say, we see, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And then John 12, verse 37, "Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence they still did not believe in him going on to 42 yet at the same time many even among the leaders believed in him but because of the pharisees they were not open they were they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue for they loved human praise more than praise from god isn't that a terrible human condition that we all face he was even rejected by the evil in that day, John 3, verse 20, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. He was rejected by his, the, the greater group of disciples initially, and then on the cross, he finds himself totally alone. But this is about the bigger um, group of followers, John 6, verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned, back, um, turned their back and no longer followed him. He was rejected by those that he was trying to teach. John 8, verse 58 says, Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, Before Abraham was, I am. And at this they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. And you think about times where, like the rich young ruler where Jesus was setting the bar too high and just he couldn't he was asking too much the price tag of following Jesus, when people simply forgot what Jesus had done when he healed them, and you think that that even that statement that the 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 stone that the builders rejected, the builders are the ones that should have known better, if you think about in your own home, when you got someone, if you got someone to build or do an extension, you get the best architect and the best builder because they know what needs to be done to keep a structure up. But here we see that even the builders of those days, the religious, didn't recognize in Jesus who He was and rejected Him. But in God's kingdom, we also see that that even from that rejection, an amazing story is turned around, and that is often like it. I don't know if you love those movies where people go, and they face rejection after rejection, and face hard times in their life, and they get like a million no's, and they finally get the one yes, and those are those stories of victory, and it's the same in God's kingdom that these rejections turn into just part of God's salvation history, and it becomes part of our faith foundation, because now the one that is rejected becomes our cornerstone. And if you know anything about building in the ancient days, and there were some magnificent buildings, these weren't average little buildings with stones. If you think about it, they didn't have the machinery to dig the deep foundations and everything that was required. But if you go to Rome and Greece and Israel, you'll see the most astounding buildings. There were craftsmen who knew how to build. And what they did is they had developed these skills. And one of them was this cornerstone or capstone where everything was lined up. And that would create this precision, this way of building that would ensure that the house wouldn't crumble. So that very cornerstone was the first one laid to set the reference for everything else that, that would happen. And if you've also traveled around to, to maybe diverse, more diverse countries, you might see houses built on stilts to withstand the things that go around them, and they need to be high. You might see some built in, in rocks. If you think of like the, the persecuted church, a lot of them in Turkey, you can see these, these homes built into rocks. You can see these places, if you go to a place that's prone to earthquakes, then they're reinforced to withstand the earthquakes. The house is perfectly designed for what is needed in that environment. And when it comes to salvation, God perfectly designed exactly what is needed for salvation, and it came in Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 4 explains it well. It's in verse 11, Jesus is the stone your builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which We must be saved. And we need to watch out because if we start hearing about other ways to save us and we think, well, that's obvious, in the church we know Jesus is the way. But it comes in subtly. It comes in 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 different forms. When we, if you look at cults, a lot of them start out with this person who makes themselves the center, who makes themselves the important one, that is the one that can be trusted. If you even think of churches where they are legalistic and you have to do certain things to give evidence, and if you're not, you are judged. And those are all little entrances into slightly twisting what God has done here, because he says salvation is found in no one else. Salvation isn't found in you and what you do. It was never about you and what you do. Salvation isn't found in any church leader. There's no one else where we can find salvation, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. He is the name, and he's the only name, and he will only ever be the only name that by which we can be saved. Isaiah 28 says, So, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. So, we see here this picture of just what God has lined up. You could. some will say, well, we don't really know. Yes, we do. We are told in Scripture exactly the way to salvation, and we can know for certain as our cornerstone. So, the temptation, if you're not a believer, is to just totally reject this message, because everyone will have to make a choice. Am I going to follow this message, or am I going to reject it? But, you know, there's also a temptation when it comes to our own lives. As Christians, if you if you are following God, there's still something that we can do in our life that can can kind of erode the building. And if you think about the Old Testament and the time where God was working in these communities, where they were seeing the mighty hand of God and they were praising Him, and they were able to say, His love endures forever, and they were celebrating that. And then we fast forward to the Gospels when Jesus comes to earth and it's spiritually dry. How did it go from a nation of people following God to people that didn't even know and didn't even recognize the Christ? It can happen in one generation, in two generations. And the way it happens is when we start chipping away at the cornerstone. We start changing the goals of what it means to be saved. Well, actually, did Jesus really mean that? Does the Bible actually mean that? Who was the first person to ever say that in the Bible? It was the devil because that is the way he tempts us. He says, well, if you just remove this, you don't really, you're interpreting that scripture wrong, let's let's really just throw it out. That is when we start chipping away at what the cornerstone has done. Another way we do it is almost by playing spiritual Tetris, where we just move things around. If you've ever played Tetris, you just move the blocks and make them fit. And that's often the temptation that we can have with when it comes to our faith, that we just make our home, our spiritual home, more comfortable to live in. This is more palatable. If I don't make a stand in this area, then actually this this becomes a kind of blend in with everyone else. And there's a real danger when we, we look at ways of accommodating people who have different beliefs and saying, actually, yeah, you might be right. Maybe this is a road. We don't actually know when actually we're told that we can know and we do know. That's when, we, when we're letting circumstances dictate our faith and not the other way around. We have chosen to move the cornerstone, and that is the house that will collapse. It's the one that won't stand firm when the storms hit. And so we need to make sure that we keep the cornerstone in its place, that we're lining up what it means to have faith and to trust in God, what salvation means, what God in our own life means. And so, what does it mean for us as Christians? And I think the big question is, it's, it's really what we're saying yes to and what we're saying no to, because what we're saying yes to in our faith shows what we value. I was thinking this week about, and we had an interesting experience where um, we were on holiday, and so we're generally quite strict, not as strict, rational with our kids when it comes to what they should eat and what they shouldn't, um, but decided to be fun parents and get them a slushy which was laden with sugar. If you don't know what it is, it's basically sugar, food coloring, and ice. Um, And the minute that you give kids good food, I mean, bad food, you know what happens. The next step and I'm not saying this happens in our household because I've got one of the kids here, so I just need to defend his character. Um, but, but what generally happens, if you give kids sugar, I'll speak about principles and not people here. Um, so apparently, Jono tells me, one of, his, one of the doctors that he's at the practice he works at has told him he's an expert in sugar. So he spent, you know, spends copious amounts of time studying sugar. Takes one taste for a child to taste sugar and enjoy it. And they don't have to try it again from that day that they taste it, or whatever product it is that's laden with sugar, they decide in their brain they like it. It's just the way it all works. How many times did he say, I don't want to get it wrong, I think it's 30, 30 about 30 tries to develop a taste for a new food. So that would be like a new vegetable or new meat or something. And I think it's the same if we look at our, at our own character. Sometimes sin has this way of enticing us, and it's that one taste. It's that one little bite of something that can just drag us in and give us a taste for something. We agreed in our house with my daughter after the second one, and you just don't judge me, but my mother would never let us have. Bubblegum milkshakes growing up. And so I let them have a bubblegum milkshake, and we paid the price because the blue coloring just did not agree with my daughter. I don't know if it agrees with anyone. I'm not sure about you as parents, but it just, we had, it was really troubling at home. And by the end of the day, we both agreed like blue coloring isn't a good thing for you, (laughs) and she said, yes, (laughs) and can I go to bed, but if you'd walked past our house on Friday night, you would have known all about it, and those are just those tastes, those things that seem great at the time, those doors that we open up in our lives to just have a taste, the things that we just say yes to, but as I, sorry, I got sidetracked, but you know, also when we're saying yes to something, we're saying no to something else, because then all of a sudden. They don't want to eat the vegetables and the good things that will nourish their bodies. It's the same when we are not saying yes to things like the fruit of the Spirit, to joy. We are opening the door to anger. So you see, it's always that balance of saying yes to things that God has called us to in His ways and saying no to other things. Titus 2 verse 11 says, for the grace of God has appeared and that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness. So when we saying no to ungodliness, we saying yes to God, saying no to ungodliness and worldly passion. When we saying no to worldly passion, we're saying yes to being passionate about God. And to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And so that is the one step. He's just going, what, is, what are you saying yes to in God's kingdom and what are you saying no to in other places? Sometimes it's things as simple as time. I'm saying yes to wasting time. I'm saying no to spending time with God. You see, every yes that we say um, say, will have that opposite no. So sometimes it's just those subtle little things that we're getting a taste of. And then not only that, but as we align our lives to the cornerstone and to what Jesus has called us to, there's another thing that we need to become familiar with, and that is rejection. Because you see, rejection didn't stop when Jesus died on the cross. It's something that we are told we will have in this life, that we will have hardships, that we will have trouble. And we see that with the disciples. Too often, we'll do anything we can to escape rejection of, or sharing that message of what God has done and who He is. And we don't want to offend someone, so we just don't say something or we change the message a bit. Then we are walking on dangerous ground. We need to learn what it feels like to be rejected for what we believe. And it's becoming harder and harder when we live in a culture where likes is the most important thing. We're seeing it more in the teenage generation, and the generation coming up, that my happiness depends on how many thumbs up or likes I get on Facebook or hots on Instagram. Because, and it's almost become this addictive thing because we are, we are addicted to get man's approval. It is an important thing. It's how we wide. It's once again something that if we just get a taste of, we do it more and more and more. When we need to learn to say, actually, it's okay if you don't like me, but this is what God has called me to. And that is what, what the message is, is that sometimes we're going to have to embrace persecution and rejection. Philippians 3 says this, whatever, whatever, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attending um, attending to the resurrection from the dead. When we embrace the gospel, we need to embrace the full gospel. When we say, yes, we believe in this cornerstone being the only way into the kingdom, this is what I build my house on. It's going to take embracing of things, but it's going to be saying no to other things. You can't take a half gospel. You can't rearrange your house and take the stone out, because then you are not following the true message of the gospel, because this is what we give our lives for. This is what Paul said, I will count everything else as rubbish, as a loss, because of this great thing that I'm following, the Christ that I'm following, even if it's to the point of death. What a challenge we we kind of see the disciples as well. They had the bar high. They were in this community that was hostile. This is the same thing God is calling us to. Anyone who follows Christ has to deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow him daily. That is the gospel message that we're being called to. So, as I end, I just want to challenge you with that question: What do you need to say yes to in your life, and what do you need to say no to when it comes to God's kingdom in your life? What does God want to do in you? What is he calling you to? Because he's calling us to be like him, to follow his example. And yes, rejection might be a part of it. Yes, there are things that might be a part of it. But following him is that pull of great price. Nothing else will compare. So I'm going to pray, and I'm just really going to especially pray for for any of us that are battling to say no to things too and yes to God. God. Because, as I said, it can sometimes happen subtly, and then before we realize it, we have hard hearts, and we feel totally disconnected from God. And I really feel like, that if that's you, that I want to pray especially for you today, that you will just have that, that um, I guess, a hunger and a thirst for righteousness to desire it again, and for God to really just light that fire, to be your cornerstone so that your house, your life, and even your household, your family... Whoever it is that you encounter sees this message and sees what God is doing in your life. Lord, I thank you for this message. I thank you that you've shown us a clear way of salvation, and it's through Jesus Christ. We thank you for not holding back. Lord, so often we hold back, Lord. We say yes to things we shouldn't, and we, we sometimes say no to you, Lord. Lord, I pray that we'll put you in your rightful place again as our cornerstone, our capstone, that your word will become the measuring point by which we orientate our lives. Lord, we know that in this world we do have troubles. There is rejection. There are times when this calling is a hard one, but Lord, you really are so beautiful, so worth it, Lord. And, Lord, I especially pray for anyone here who may be battling to say yes to you, to completely surrender. Lord, that you will just, yeah, that they'll find your heart. Lord, that they will, your word says you reward those who earnestly seek you. Lord, that we'll just earnestly seek you and find you, Lord. Lord, I thank you that every page really does whisper your name. And even in the Psalms, we see these pictures of Jesus. That salvation history is something so beautiful, and as we look at that journey of Jesus, we remind it again that he held nothing back, that you moved heaven and earth to send Jesus to save us. Lord, we don't want to be a people that say no to you. We want to make our homes and our hearts available for you to move. So, Lord, we just commit each person that's here, and we know we're all on a different journey with you, Lord. But may our eyes be fixed on you. You are the prize, you're the goal, and it's all about you and for your name's sake. Amen.